Dr. Tobias Jones is a researcher and historian of Mongol history, and much more importantly, now also officially the first recurring guest of the Smart <laughs> Cookies podcast, previously, of course, known as Eurotrash, back by popular demand, I have to say. <laughs> Tobias, welcome. Thank you for having me again. It's great to be back. No, but really, after our conversation, I believe it was a year ago already, I received so, yeah. a couple of emails praising the episode, <laughs> and especially you, of course, as a guest. Also, a couple of my friends told me privately that they really enjoyed it <laughs> as well. Uh, yeah. I believe it is also the number one history episode when it comes to audio downloads of this entire pod. Right? So it only made sense to ask you yeah. to come back again. So thank okay. you so much. No, no problem. I don't mind talking about this for as long as as long as you like. <laughs> Maybe I should just make this podcast about Mongol history <laughs> and, and start a new one. I have, been, I have been asked. I have been asked if I want to do that, but I'm not re quite ready to commit to it. Okay, cool. Uh, well, <laughs> until then, uh, you're going to be a, a, recur a recurring guest Great. here, like no every problem. month now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so a year ago, we had a really compelling conversation about the history of the Mongol Empire. And Akana wanted us to cover frantically, because of me, of course, most of the well-known stuff, which is impossible mm -hmm. in an hour, of course. Mm -hmm. So we talked about Chinggis Khan uh, or Genghis Khan. We, we talked about Mongol conquests, their customs, warfare, etc., etc. I warmly, warmly encourage everyone that's listening right now to go listen to that episode. It was not just utterly fascinating but also informative and unexpectedly funny <laughs> especially the part about crazy mongol whining and dining and of course the mm. hilarious story of the first western diplomat i believe to the mongols uh john of plano carpini whom you called i believe uh the very unlikely medieval james bond yes not, not my <laughs> words but a brilliant okay. a brilliant quote uh, from from a fellow scholar who uh, who who nailed it i think <laughs> A brilliant reference, yeah. <laughs> um, today, however, we're going to have a tiny bit more of a topical conversation, even though the topic is still incredibly vast. Yep. I have no other way of putting it than to say that we're going to be talking about a couple of extraordinarily badass women mm -hmm. of the Mongol Empire. Yes. I mean, from my very limited reading, thank you, Wikipedia, <laughs> these stories are just screaming for someone to turn them into a sassy HBO series uh, <laughs> or something. But before we go to, to personal destinies, let's at least set some basic um, coordinates here. Mm -hmm. I think with men of the Mongol Empire, and that was obvious from the last episode we did as well, we have this kind of, at least a general perspective of someone who's first and foremost uh, a mounted hunter and, and warrior. But with women, however, it gets much more murky pretty fast. So I wanted us to start with what was kind of the role or status of, of women in Mongol society, let's say in the moment when Temujin or Genghis Khan later, when he appears on the world stage. Yeah, I mean, it's um, you, you mentioned the, the murkiness of it. And of course, that's um, that has to do with sources, right? Is that Sources tend to focus on on men's roles. That's just the long and short of it. Um, and you know, because also because a lot of those sources come not from the not from Mong Mongols themselves, um, they bring with them a lot of their own you know uh, 
assumptions about the roles of women and things like that, right? So a lot of the sources come from uh, the Persian society or Chinese society. They have specific uh, ideas about the role of women. And so they try and sort of impose those on uh, the Mongols also. It doesn't always work, which thankfully, because then we get a lot of really fascinating stuff about Mongol women. Um, but of course, uh, from Mongolian sources, primarily the secret history of the Mongols, which we talked about last time, yep. um, you do get quite an interesting picture of the role of women. Um, so, of course, as part of the sort of um, the steppe nomad uh, society, they have a key role, right? Um, they are part uh, of, in the function of animal husbandry, they take care of a lot of the animals. Um, they make a lot of the items that uh, Mongol society needs. Um, but basically, they're also able to take over when the men go off to war, right? They're sort of able to manage everything. And this is one of the key things that we see throughout um, this period is that that when the Chinggis Khan or any of his, his successors leaves uh, on, on campaign, uh, they leave their camp, their mobile camp, they leave those in the hands of one of their wives who basically takes over the running of it. Um, so in that sense, Mongol women were ready to take up that 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 position. Um, and so uh, we have a lot of stories about uh, sort of that happening, both in the early period when Timujin is just coming up. Um, he's basically, uh, when his father is killed, uh, when he's quite young, his mother, Oelun, she basically takes over the running of <clears throat> that camp. It becomes a very small camp uh, because a lot of people desert her because uh, she is a woman and seen as not a, a leader at that time. But she really, you know, she uh, makes sure that the camp survives. Uh, she makes sure that her sons survive. Um, and, you know, we have stories about her riding out with the standard to try and reclaim the people of her of her husband who had deserted um, uh, her and her, her children. Uh, it doesn't work exactly, but <clears throat> she keeps them going. She keeps the, um, the, the camp th thriving to, to a small extent and keeps them alive, essentially. Uh, and that means that, that Temujin is able to, to carry on. So we have this early example, uh, in, Mon in the sort of, uh, Mongol imperial period of a really, uh, important figure. Uh, who is a woman who leads, right? Um, and this uh, sort of sets the tone um, for the rest of for the rest of the Mongol period of um, women really taking on leadership roles. And this happens very regularly. And so, yeah, we shouldn't perhaps be so so surprised by it. But um, I think when you usually the difference is we compare it to other societies around. And we see, you know, perhaps the role of women being very, um, not very uh, prominent, let's say, in the, the realms of politics. Uh, and then, uh, you know, it's more of a back, in, in the back, background. Of course, women are always involved in politics. But in Europe, for example, it's usually further in the background, right? Um, but in Mongol society, they're really at the forefront in a lot of cases. And this is what's led to a lot of the fascination um, around Mongol women. Could we dare a comparison with the status of women in medieval Europe, with the status of, of women in the Mongol Empire or the beginning of the Mongol Empire? 
Yeah. Are I there mean, some similarities? Well, of course. I mean, I think that you have to, the, the, the problem becomes um, sort of a, a lot of assumptions about what, what Mongol society is. Um, and there's there's been a lot of that in the past about how it's more egalitarian, it's more, um, you know, sort of communal, that sort of thing. And I think a lot of that has been debunked. Um, a lot of it, it has been proved to be a very aristocratic society. You know, there are certain families that dominate the rule of, of the society and things like that. So because of that, and also because of what we've seen from you know, Mongol women getting to a high position, there's been perhaps a little bit um, of an overstatement uh, of, mm-hmm. of what um, the situation of women in Mongolian society. Um, and I think that it's natural because, if, as you say, if you compare it to uh, Europe <clears throat> or the Middle East or China, right, the, the sort of the societies that, that, that circle um, the, the nomadic steppe, you would say that women don't have a very um, a very outward role in in yeah I guess it would be more like politics right they still have a very important role in the running of society the running of uh, you know farming all these things they, they're still involved right heavily involved but in Mongol society it's more prominent um, and I think that that um, you know it, it really developed it developed from seeing all these Mongolian women really at the forefront um and but if you look at if you look at it of course mongol society is still incredibly patriarchal um and you know there are a lot of um there are a lot of moments where we see um that women are still often treated um you know as property and things like that so you really um it shouldn't be taken too far um and i think that <clears throat> what we're sort of coming to now um, I have to mention at this moment there are two. There were two fascinating books that came out in the last few years. Um, one by uh, Anne Broadbridge, another by an, uh, a guy called Bruno De Nicola, who both wrote books on Mongol women in 2017, 2018. So they came out right around the same time, and so um, these books have really inspired um, a lot more discussion about um, this. Um, but I think also people are starting to realize that we, you know, we, we have to try and figure out the limits of this because you don't want to go go around saying that, you know, everything was great for women in Mongol society because that's clearly not the case. Um, it's really at the elite level where you see the difference, right, is that you see Mongol women taking a very proactive role in politics. And that, I guess, is the primary difference, I would say. Okay. Was there a difference between lowborn and aristocratic women? Of in course. The yes, absolutely. Absolutely. The way you would see it, perhaps, um, again, this goes back to do we assume that Mongol society, because it is nomadic, is more sort of free? Uh, because, of course, if you're a nomad, you have the ability to right, leave. You have the ability to move away from, you know, a, a system or a group that would be... Uh, you know, oppressing you or something like that. So do you assume based on that, that Mongol women had more freedom? Well, you know, possibly in the sense of uh, they, they're going off with their group, but they're still tied to their family unit. Right. Mm. Um, And this is something that um, you, you see in that Mongol society is based on um, marriage that is, Exogamous is the term. So basically, you do not marry within your own family unit. You don't marry within that group. You marry with 
outside that group. So basically, the, the Chinggisids, the descendants of Chinggis Khan, all uh, married. They primarily, you would choose a certain lineage to uh, marry into, and then you would continue to marry within that group throughout the, the lineage, right? So the, the Mongols decided that there were a certain groups that were famed for, for example, their, the, the, the beauty of their women. Uh, so the Kongarat are one group, the Oirat are another, and basically the, the sons of uh, Chinggis Khan all married women from these groups. So basically, but these, they, these are all these are all Mongols. Are they part of other Turkic? Yeah, the, basically, there's different groups on the on the Mongolian steppe who are Turkic and Mongol or Mongol, and some of them uh, become basically. So the term is called the Kuda, and this is the marriage partner. And this marriage partner status is basically granted to one uh, lineage from uh, the Oirat, for example, Mongolian speaking. Yes. Uh, and they continue to marry uh, across those two lineages. So women okay. from women from the the, the Chinggisid lineage marry uh, Oirat men, and vice versa. So yeah. So you have these... so Chinggis's father was like, son. I heard the women from that group are really really beautiful. We're gonna tie our fortunes with with. <laughs> with yeah, well, that's pretty. So, that's a pretty good deal. I'm not gonna lie. So well, the, actually, what the interesting thing is about that period is really um, this is where you see this sort of um, it's somewhat a societal uh, assumption uh, or, or sort of ritual um, about abduction, right? So even in uh, normal marriages, there's sort of like a little game that is played where uh, the woman sort of runs off and the man has to go and capture her. Um, but actually what normally happens in a, in a normal marriage is that there would be a contract and the husband has to um, pay the bride price or work for his in-laws for a certain number of years, right? And this is actually what Timogen was, was supposed to do um, uh, on, uh, when he uh, got his wife, um, and he did not do this. He was, he was not actually, he did not complete the, 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 the role. So what actually happens is that uh, the poor the poorer people end up doing this actual abduction of women. So um, you have Timujin's father, Yisuge, he abducts his wife, Timujin's mother, and Timujin himself abducts his wife, Berthe. So there's this sort of, um, yeah, it's this this kind of, um, yeah, it's societal ritual, but in, in some cases of poverty, uh, they actually do end up abducting women. And then you get these repercussions, right? Is that the, the societies from the people groups from whom they did abduct them end up taking revenge and, and taking women back and things like that. Like a blood feud. Exactly. So, okay, ju just a second. If we just stop here for a little bit. So was it a kind of uh, ritual that was agreed upon before this bride kidnapping, or was it actual kidnapping? Well, that's I what I'm uh, Yeah, I watched a documentary, if you can call it that, from Vice about uh, bride kidnapping in Kyrgyzstan today. There is clearly a a, um, an, a ritualized element to it, um, and it, it's it's you know, it, though some some of the way that we have rituals around weddings too, right? I mean, we still use phrases, you know, like you give this woman, you know, it's it, it's it's a little bit ritualized, even though those things no longer have the same meaning, right? Right. Um, and so this is a, a moment where there is this t tends to there is this ritual. However, 
there is also real um, kidnapping. So um, you have the example of, of Timujin's mother, Oelun, who in the secret history is portrayed as really um, devastated by um, being taken away from her original husband. Uh, who was uh, a man named Chilger of the Merkit. And she's, you know, she sings this uh, or, or recites this poem about how, you know, uh, she's devastated to be losing him. And, you know, he should remember the smell of her shirt and things like that. So it's a really evocative image of, you know, of, of loss. Um, and it's really interesting that it's also that is that is included in the in the secret history, which definitely is, you know, on the side of the of Timogen and his father. But they still include this really, you know, powerful image of her losing her, her original husband and then uh, Yisuge, Tim, Timogen's father, taking her. Um, and so there which, is which probably means it really happened. Right. Because otherwise they wouldn't. Include well, and then and then the American respond later in 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 uh, Timonjin's life. They they come and they they take Berta, uh, Timonjin's uh, wife, as revenge, um, and so this causes you know this this feud between the two, um, and doesn't end until uh, the the Mongols uh, defeat and destroy the Merkit uh, royal house. So really, there's this 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 is created from that. Um, and so, you know, the, in the ideal in the ideal situation, this would be avoided by exactly having um, a, a bride price, having um, a contract, having this uh, the, the the husband work for the the family of the uh, the in laws. But you know, in the the cases of this sort of um, up and coming society, they, they have to fight a little bit more for their uh, status. And, and this is when they end up capturing women. Um, and the capturing of women goes on, right? That that doesn't stop. So you have to see it from that perspective. So Temujin's mother was already married to another man. And yes. yet she was still kidnapped by Temujin's father. Why yes. did he do that if he knew that she was already married, that there's going to be potential retribution? And that she's probably going to be miserable as well. It, a lot of things stacked up against this decision. Yeah, well, but it, it's also that um, the, the status of the woman um, is incredibly important, right? And that, that status lends itself to the man's uh, lineage, right? And this is what you see throughout Mongol society is that they are really keen to marry women with, of high status, um, and so in that early period where they're still sort of trying to establish themselves uh, as, um, you know, a, a proper uh, high status lineage, that's important, right, to to have a, um, a high status woman uh, by your side and your, your children will, will their, their lineage will be sort of um, more elevated because of that. So you do see that uh, happening. Um, and yeah, it's... Uh, it goes on, right? It goes on later, and um, you have the issue with Berta, um, this this sort of issue in reverse, because when the market come and take revenge for this early sorry, moment, Berta is Genghis Khan's wife. Yes, um, First and wife. she is she is so the market in revenge for Yisuge taking Oelun. Uh, the names are a bit tricky sometimes, but uh, if, mm. if in revenge for this, they come later and they take Timujin's wife, Berta. And this leads to uh, issues because um, uh, 
Temujin's oldest son, Jochi, is born shortly after this abduction, right? So there's a an assumption or a, yeah, uh, perhaps a, a, a story going around that Jochi was not actually Temujin's son, um, that he was a descendant of the Merkit. And this ends up being played out later um, in the, the decision who should succeed Temujin. And uh, Jochi's other brother, Chagatai, calls him a, a bastard of the market, right? Um, and so this does cause problems for the family generally, um, even though Temujin seems to have been very much accepting of Jochi, no matter what, you know, uh, who his actual father was. If we rewind back mm-hmm. a little bit, what was a typical upbringing for a Mongolian girl of the period? What do the sources say, if anything, about that? Uh, and, and especially opposed to um, an upbringing of a Mongolian boy, let's say. Yeah, um, it's sort of we don't we don't get a uh, sort of how to um, about uh, raising a Mongolian girl. Sadly, um, uh, I think that uh, we have to look at perhaps their what their roles were. Um, and, you know, would they, they would be trained in similar things, right? I think they would still be trained in horseback riding. Um, they would still be trained in um, animal husbandry, right? The, the things that are needed to, um, to keep the society running. Uh, so there's certainly that. Uh, but also, you know, what happens with these exogamous marriages, right, is that they are sent away from their own families, they're sort of sent often quite far away, right? So they're not even in the same region. Uh, and so in that sense, there must have been some uh, attempts to prepare them for a life where they were not connected so much to their own families. You know, that, of course, there were still connections, but um, you had to be sort of uh, ready to to um, uh, to be over with the, your, your husband's family. And so in that sense, I think um, they're the sort of, at least at the elite level, pre- preparation for a life of um, political sort of involvement too, right? Um, and what we don't know, and this is actually really interesting. So I was just um, at a conference where uh, Christopher Atwood was presenting his new um, translation of the secret history of the Mongols. So this is the, um, the earliest uh, Mongolian language source. And he suggests that there's a possibility that it was written by a woman. Um, and I, I was actually, I was quite shocked by this, um, but he does present some very interesting evidence of uh, who the source could be. Um, and I asked him uh, about, uh, well, okay, that's it. certainly a very um, interesting proposal. How's, how does it work with literacy, right? Um, and so he, well, he, as he pointed out, we don't know very much about male literacy either. So um, it's not impossible that um, women were literate because they were also responsible for the training and uh, upkeep of their sons. So their sons were were trained in, you know, um, uh, politics and things like that. And they, 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 they undertook this training under the, the sort of leadership of their mothers or sometimes uh, sort of an adoptive mother who would take them in and, tr- and train them up. Um, but we still don't know very much, if anything, about uh, uh, Mongol women being literate 
of course, we don't know very much about Mongol men being literate either. So yeah, it's a sort of unknown aspect of whether at what point, because of course, later on, we do have knowledge of, of, of later Mongol Khans receiving training in different languages and things like that. But that may also have been the case for, for uh, the daughters of the, of the Khans too. We don't know. Um, but the- yeah, exactly. So it's, it's hard to, um, really take a strong point on that. Um, but given how it seems to me that, um, you know, that the, their level of involvement in politics, it doesn't, it doesn't seem unlikely that they, they, they were literate, right? Um, if you have later on, you have various women taking very, you know, um, g- giving commands, hiring officials, all that sort of thing. Um, yes, of course, this could be done without, uh, literacy, but, it it seems that you know if they had the people there to train them, perhaps they, they they took up took them up on that, right? All right. So back to Temujin's mother, Hoylun. Yeah. Oilun. Sorry. Yeah. Um. So uh, if I remember it correctly, Temujin's father gets poisoned pretty fast, mm-hmm. right, by the Tatars or somebody. Yes. Is that correct? And then she finds herself pretty much alone with her little camp and her sons. Uh, like you said, everybody else deserted her, and she's alone. How is she able to defend herself in this harsh environment without a lot of protection? Is her status, her noble status, kind of protecting her and her sons? Or how does that work? Because I'm just imagining like, a, you know, a middle-aged woman or whatever um, with, with a couple of her sons, maybe a couple of servants, but that's pretty much it. How come she wasn't just attacked, kidnapped by a rival group? How come she wasn't, yeah, um, forcefully married again or something? Yeah, I think there is a little bit of um, sort of making her uh, into a heroine figure. Um, and, you know, there is this portrayal of, you know, like she's she's collecting um, nuts and berries for them to live on. I don't think that's the really, I mean, I think they did have a bigger uh, staff, you know, a, a larger number of retainers and servants then uh, the secret history would would sort of imply that this absolute poverty. I don't think that was ever the case. Um, there is also there. There's a strong. Uh, there's a suggestion in. It's not really mentioned uh, explicitly in the secret history. It is in other sources that she married again. Um, that she uh, married as a man named Munglik, uh, and that he's called Father Munglik in the secret history. So there's this sort of like already you know. And in other sources, such as Rashida Dean, it's mentioned explicitly that she married him. Uh, and and uh, Yisuge, her husband, as he's sort of on the on, on his deathbed, says, take care of her. Um, so there is and they were they seem to be quite a powerful family. Um, one of their uh, one of his sons, not their sons, um, one of Menglik's sons is the famous um, shaman Teb Tengri. Uh, who's very important in, in, in Timujin's rise. So clearly there are powerful people still around them. Um, and yes, you, the, the status may have uh, protected them, but it also seems to be a reason that they were targeted, right? Um, later on, you have a moment where the Taichiut, who are sort of cousins of, of Timujin, come and uh, invade the camp and capture him and take him away. Uh, and this uh, moment is, you know, clearly they're they're looking after this 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 guy who who may be a threat at some point. Um, and so, in that sense, there is a little bit of uh, of that. But yeah, the 
the fact that they're sort of abandoned, this, you know, is also, um, it's a statement, right? It's a, it's a status statement that we're no longer with you um, and your status is, is low now. Um, and there's this, this moment, right, where the, uh, the Taichi woman um, don't uh, include Oelun in one of these ritual sacrifices. And this is the signal that they're no longer considered of the same status. Um, and so, yeah, there's the, there's a clear sort of you're 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 no longer one of us. Um, and then you have this moment where Olun is really trying to keep her small family together. Um, and in this moment, you have actually uh, her to uh, so Yisuge's other wife. Of course, this is very common in Mongol society. We can't forget is that they're they're it's polygamous, right? They will have multiple wives if depending on their wealth. And so Yisuge had two wives. The other one, whose name we don't know, uh, was also with them, and her sons were also with them. And so you have this sort of small family unit, and actually there is, there's clashes between the two groups of sons. And at some stage, Yisuge, uh, Timujin, sorry, kills uh, Bekter, his half-brother. Um, so this is clearly sort of like a battle for, for, for um, priority uh, amongst the, the sons of Yisuge. So yeah, that that there, uh, there's a lot of legend around this period, um, and what uh, ends up happening is Oelun is soon seen as this sort of example of of what a Mongolian woman should be, and then later on, uh, another woman, a very famous one, Sorkoktani Beki, um, she becomes a widow. She's the wife of Tolui, Ching is his fourth son. She becomes a widow and she doesn't marry again. And she's portrayed as even better than Holun because she doesn't marry again. Um, it's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of legend around, uh, these, these women. It's quite interesting. They sort of become almost like, um, you know, cult figures themselves. Would it be fair to say that Temujin's mother was kind of, his most trusted confidant in this period or maybe throughout his life or, or it's, she's, was she's, not on, she's not only that, but she's also his sort of um, guide because she's, she's the one basically often telling him when he's doing things wrong. Uh, and this is quite interesting about the secret history is that it doesn't hide this, right? It has moments where she, um, you know, will tell him directly things that, you know, she says there's this very uh, powerful image where he's uh, basically trying to um, assert his own authority over his younger brother, uh, Jochi Kasar. And there's this powerful image where she says, you drained my right breast. Uh, the other child drained my left breast, but Jochi used to drain both breasts and give me uh, release. Right. And so there's this very powerful image of, you know, her regularly putting uh, Timogen in his place, saying this is the things these are the things you should not be doing. Um, and this also goes for Berta, his wife. She's often the one to sort of say, hey, hang on, um, you need to be doing this. Uh, and she's often acts as a political advisor, too. So, yeah, I think women often in the secret history have this role of like providing that this is what you should be doing. And that's what's quite interesting is that we don't see this so much um, in other sources, of course. But in this source, we really see this this role of women saying, hang on, this this is this is the right way to go about doing things. And that's something that I've noticed is quite uh, interesting, given what other sources at the time uh, would have said about that. Right. Right. Um, 
you have uh, moments where they say, you know, this is the way it is done. This is the way uh, the elders have done it, right? So this is this is the, the path that you should follow. And so that's uh, one role they have in uh, the secret history that doesn't really seem to be um, so much present in the other sources. Also kind of like pillars of, of tradition and of moral authority in a sense. Yeah, and tell, telling, telling them off. That's the, it's really, you know, in some moments, it's really just telling them off. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a funny image of yeah somebody telling Geng- Genghis Khan, "Hey, mate, get it together, bro." Yeah, like, exactly. You're uh, you're, yeah. you're slipping. Um, yeah. But for example, with the case of Temujin killing his older half brother, mm-hmm. was is his mother portrayed as sort of like scheming in the background for no, him no, to no, get no. more she's, power, no, or is she portrayed? Por- okay, yeah, please. She's saying she's saying you know there's this. Um, uh, this line, uh, I, I think it's, I can't remember exactly the line, but it's basically like, we have nothing, you have to stay together, right? Um, and this also, um, this is goes back to the sort of legendary um, beginnings of the Mongols. You have the, the woman who gives birth to um, the legendary uh, founders, uh, Alan Koa, who, who is uh, Alan the Just, she's Alan the Fair, sorry. She's, she's seen as this progenitor of the Mongol line, and she's the one who tells her sons the story about the arrows. So an, a single arrow can break, but if the, all the arrows are together, you can't break them, right? And so this is the idea, and this, this is what Oelun repeats to her sons, right, is that you know, we have nothing, we have to be a unit right now. Um, and when he kills Bechter, she's extremely angry about this and says, you're weakening our sort of power in that, in doing that. Um, and this is a, this is a trope that goes on actually throughout, um, you know, uh, Mongol society of, you know, whenever the, the sons turn against each other, then there's these warnings about, you know, we have to stick together. Um, and so, yeah, this is, this is, she doesn't seem to be scheming against, uh, yeah, against her, um, yeah, the other wife's sons. What was her role later on when uh, Temujin became Chinggis Khan, the great Khan, and consolidated his power? Uh, did her status change or did, did their relationship change or did she even maybe grew in power at that point as the mother of the great Khan? Yeah, so actually when when um, the moment of, uh, let's say, imperial unification uh, is, is established, uh, there's... The sources talk about this uh, when Chinggis doles out the different uh, units of, of, of soldiers. And so each of his children get a certain amount. Uh, his um, brother's sons get a certain amount and his mother. Uh, his mother also receives uh, a certain number of, uh, of troops. Um, and she actually ends up complaining. She says, I didn't get enough troops. Um, and there, there does seem to be, have been a little bit of a, um, a conflict between the two at the end, towards the end of her life. Um, and she seems to be a little bit, uh, yeah, unimpressed by how she's treated, <laughs> uh, even though she is recognized as, you know, um, one of the, the few people who actually gets uh, apportioned troops, right, that, that are hers. Um, and so, yeah, there, there is there is a, a little bit of conflict in the end. And I think also, you know, her political role is largely now taken by Genghis's wives, um, who are the ones who begin to sort of say, uh, 
you know, you should do this, you should do that, don't do that, that's insane. Um, you know, so you get a different, um, yeah, a different generation of women taking over the reins uh, in that regard. Why did she receive troops? Supposedly, his brothers and his sons received troops so they could conquer more land. Well, it's not so. I mean, it's not if you think if you're thinking that my, maybe it was my mistake to use the term troops. That's the way they're described. But actually, what it means is it's it's basically uh, an allotment of people, and you also receive funds. Basically, you receive uh, taxes from the the land that those those people are in, uh, and also you know you continue to receive booty from um, the various expeditions that they would go on. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, when the, it's essentially what you would see in Europe would say, you know, you would be rewarded with a plot of land, right? And the, the revenues from that land in the Mongol society, it's not land because they're not a land. They don't think of things in that way. You receive a group of people and, uh, they are also supposed to provide, uh, revenue for you. Um, so that, that is the way that it's sort of seen. And yeah, his different sons are given a certain amount of people and you can see perhaps the, different status of the sons based on the amount of people that they receive. Did the life of uh, Temujin's first wife, uh, wife yeah, Berthe, um, did it mirror that of his mother to a certain extent? Well, I mean, she's, you know, she's also abducted from Because her, you said that she young. kind of replaced the role of his mother yeah. at a certain point. And she's also abducted, abducted from her husband and taken away. And, you know, um, so there are definitely parallels. Excuse me. Um, but yeah, um, she she doesn't quite have the same um, in the secret history. She, she doesn't quite have the same forcefulness as Oelun does. Um, she's, of course, not of she's not older than Timogen. So she can't really, you know, it's not a, it's, that generational gap means that, you know, the respect for elders means that Oelun as his mother can, you know, tell him off and things like that. So Borta is not so much in the yeah, telling off thing, but it's more like um, she's the one who often provides him. Okay, no, this is what this means. You should do it this like this. Um, and his other wives too. Um, also, uh, there's, you know, a moment where he's about to go off on a campaign and one of his other wives says, hang on, before you go on this, do this dangerous thing, you need to sort out the succession um, and we need to get that sorted first. So, yeah, they continue to show this uh, political acumen um, that is, is regularly uh, mentioned. And that continues, of course, after Timogen. But, yeah, Borta, it's not, um, uh, we don't have quite so much uh, information about her life. Um, and uh, that, I think, basically, she also dies. Um, she She dies before Timogen. So, Perhaps there would have been a different situation if she had survived him, um, because as we know from later moments, that when a Khan dies, often the wife would take over as the regent, right? And so because Bert predeceases Chinggis, she doesn't get to do this, but presumably uh, that may have been the case uh, if she had died after him. So, yeah, we don't get quite as much information about her specifically. All right. So this is a good moment uh, to press forward mm-hmm. and talk about Toregene. Yeah. Uh, how did I? How no, did I... it's it's fine. It's Toregene technically, but you know. Toregene. <laughs> yeah, there you go. When we had our little uh, correspondence before, uh, before the show, uh, to talk about who exactly should we talk about, you called her 
the I believe the most powerful woman in the world apart from maybe Queen Victoria. So she was the wife of the second Khan and regent of the empire of the Mongol Empire. Um, how did she become so powerful? Well, I mean, this is um, yeah, this is what was sort of an interesting development in the um, the running of the empire. Um, and we've seen, as as we mentioned with Oelun, for example, we've seen that women could take this role of, you know, um, sort of temporary leader. Basically, when Chinggis dies, um, there's a bit of a blank space as to uh, the, the disagreements between his sons. It's sort of played down. But I think there is a moment that Tolui, his youngest son, sort of tries to claim the throne. And he is seen as the regent for a time. Um, and then Ogede, who was uh, agreed upon by the Kurotai, the meeting of the, the Mongols, uh, eventually takes over. But so Tolui had had this regency position, but he may have made a play for the throne. And the Mongols, I think, saw that as somewhat dangerous, right? If you give the regency to one of the sons, the likelihood that he will just keep power is very strong, right? Um, and so after the death of Ogede, Turgene is his chief wife, and she had already been extremely sort of influential during his reign. Uh, we have different accounts that, that say that basically Ogede um, was an alcoholic and wasn't taking care of the of the realm. And so Turgene is 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 doing it. She's the one who is who's taking taking care of things. Um, and so in the last few years of Ogede's life, it seems that Turgene has a very important role already just running the, the empire. So it was sort of natural that she continued to, to, to do that whilst they decided upon a, a Khan to succeed Ogede. Um, what's actually fascinating about Turgene as well is that not only her, but her um, one of her advisors, her most powerful advisor, was also a woman uh, called Fatima Khatun. And she's a really, really interesting character. Generally, she seems to have started off uh, as a slave, basically. Um, and she rises uh, within the ranks somehow and becomes basically Turgene's main um, uh, yeah, advisor. And she's basically portrayed as the woman who you went to if you wanted to get things done. And so between them, actually, you have this period where really the Mongol Empire is being run by um, two women, in fact. Um, of course, there are still the other, uh, the officials who, who are below them. But at the top, you have these, these two women. Um, and Todegede, basically, after the death of Ogede, she contacts the, the, the other princes, such as Chagatai, and says, uh, I'm going to be running things, by the way, uh, until until we can have another Kurotai and decide upon the successor. Chagatai goes, yep, that's fine, all good. Um, and so she gets the approval of the the main um, the, the main relatives of of Chinggis who are still alive. He's the oldest at that point, Chagatai. So um, uh, you get this this okay, it's confirmed by this guy who's the eldest surviving um, son. And so, yeah, at that point, Turgene basically is in control. And she's in control between uh, the death of Ogede, I think I said 1242, but it's 1241, uh, and um, the takeover of her son, Guyuk, which she organizes. She, basically, she is the one who uh, makes sure all of that happens. She's uh, paying off the right people. She's threatening the right people or the wrong people. Uh, and essentially, she's the one who makes it happen that Guyuk 
uh, takes over. And actually, even um, it seems like even for a while, while he is Khan, she's still running things. Um, and yeah, there's basically a bit of a, a, a there's a conflict between them about Fatima um, because there's there was this accusation that Fatima had uh, poisoned uh, another uh, another son of Ogede, and um, Guyuk wants to try her, and Turgen is like, no, 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 you can't do that. She's with me, um, and so this eventually. Guyuk has to threaten his own mother and say, you know, we're doing this. And then Fatima is uh, tried and killed in a very, very horrible way. Um, and so this is sort of, this is at the moment where you see that there is, there can be a very, very strong reaction against uh, female power uh, getting too getting too great, essentially. Um, and this uh, Turgene dies uh, just of natural causes. Uh, we don't exactly know how, but uh, soon after um, Guyuk's um, election. But yeah, Fatima is killed in this really horrible way. And this also happens to later women uh, of the Mongol period. So there is a sort of, there does seem to be a reaction against um, this expression of, of female power. I was just about to ask if the punishment that were usually that was usually reserved for men and meted out to them uh, was also applied to to women when they were kind of engaged in these games of power. And I read this Fatima's death was like they sewn her up somehow and threw her in the water. Yeah. And so this really is this is yeah grim. this is something that seems to be um, more readily. Is I've just written an article about this, and this seems to be more readily attached to women. Um, the uh, accusation of sorcery. Uh, the use of of, of uh, illicit magic, right? Uh, it continues to be thrown at women uh, who, yeah, basically um, it's perhaps seen as something extraordinary that these women have got to this level of power. And so they must have done something um, dodgy to get there. Uh, and so this, this accusation, which is, of course, impossible to prove, uh, but is seen in Mongol society as very, very um, dangerous, right? The association with, you know, spirits, uh, powerful spirits is seen really negatively. And so um, in that sense, there may have been this, okay, wait, we can we can get rid of women that we don't want with this accusation. And this happens a, a few more times in Mongol society. This, this continues to happen. Um, and this execution, which is in Fatima's case, very, very um, yeah, elaborately uh, described, is meted out also to, to different women later, uh, also in the same way as being thrown in the river um, as, 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 a, as an execution, which is, um, seems to be something to do with the, the spirits that they were supposedly in contact with. And so, yeah, there's um, the two main accusations that get thrown at powerful Mongol women are poisoning and witchcraft. And so these two, of course, which are almost impossible to prove, um, become a sort of way of the, the, the Mongol men to, to bring down their female uh, rivals. Interesting. There's an odd parallel here with uh, medieval Europe, no? Uh, maybe in a slightly different way, I hosted a professor of female spirituality in medieval mm -hmm. Europe also last year. And she said that women that were usually targeted as witches were, unlike here with the Mongols, who were powerful women, 
women who are social outcasts usually, and yeah. then they were blamed for some calamity, like yeah. old women, women without families, etc., women without a, a powerful benefactor or protector. But this accusation of poisoning was regularly um, kind of uh, applied to powerful women as well, like you know certain queens. Catherine mm -hmm. of Medici, I think, mm -hmm. was famous for that. So, so yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I think it's um, well. The, actually, what's interesting is that when I was doing the the research for this article, I was looking, reading up a little bit on on uh, medieval witchcraft in Europe, and really, actually, that so the association with women in particular was not that strong until later, right? Until the early modern period. Um, and so, however, here in the in the Mongol period, yes, men were also accused of witchcraft, um, much less, but still, it happened. Um, but yeah, I think it's, you know, this, this somewhat this trope, right, of the, the, the powerful woman who's scheming and, you know, is always behind the scenes and, you know, the, how can they, you know, poison a scene as a woman's weapon and all these things, right? There's this, this assumption about what it goes on behind what we can't see. Um, and I think poison and witchcraft are easily put in the same sort of, we can't see what's going on there, but we know something's up because they have way too much power and they, they shouldn't have this much power. Um, and, you know, even in Mongol society, there are regularly statements made about the place of women and it shouldn't be there. Um, and so you do have moments. Of course, the issue is that these the sources which say, state this come from societies where that is much more the case. And so it's sort of hard to see if that is coming from the Mongols themselves or if that's coming from their sources. Of course, the fact that these women were killed on charges of witchcraft means that there clearly was some reaction against uh, Mongol female power. Uh, and so that is one thing that, uh, yeah, it seems to, there seems to be a, a sort of a moment where Mongol women really get to, to the heights. And this is in the case of Turgene, uh, another regent who succeeds Guyuk called Ogul Gamish. Uh, and then uh, another regent in the Chagatayid realm called Orgina. And these three are around this, roughly the same period. Uh, but once they sort of uh, are killed in various ways, uh, well, actually, sorry, only Ogul Gamish is killed. But once they, 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 they fall, there isn't another sort of moment where Mongol women reach these heights. Uh, they're still very important and they still play uh, these political roles, but they no longer are um, established as regents in the same way. And so this becomes, you know, there's sort of perhaps there's this the, because of the strong reaction against these women. There may have been a sort of like, OK, you know, they're not going to get to the same level. Um, so, yeah, the, then women become much more, uh, yeah, still in this position of advice and um, cons consultation because Mongol women were always included in the kurultais also, right? These these big events where they consult about who should be ruler, where to, should we attack next, uh, what taxes should we uh, introduce. Mongol women are part of that. So, in so that they sense, discuss and they discuss uh, with the yeah. men and they vote yeah. as, uh, as well. They have yeah, a vote? I don't know about voting is the right term. Um, they, <laughs> okay. they have a voice. They have a voice. It's they definitely voice. true. Yeah. And this would have been, so this would have been the, the um, female descendants of Chinggis himself uh, and the wives of the important um, princes. So yeah, it's not all women. <laughs> it's not, it's not all the women, but it's in the, the women in specific 
roles uh, who are present there. And so they do partake in that. Um, and yeah, so we have a lot of information about them being involved still after this period, late into the 13th century, but it, they no longer reach this absolute pinnacle that they had done in the middle uh, of that century. So during this pinnacle, when Toregena is kind of ruling the Mongol Empire, what was her title? Um, so she only had the, this is actually something I looked into, is there is there an official title for a regent? And there doesn't seem right. to be. Um, in Chinese, you get the term like dowager empress. Um, so that that is an important role in China also. So that is used in the Chinese sources. In other sources, they just say that she sort of takes over. It doesn't, um, they, because they don't seem to have an equivalent themselves, they don't know what to call her. So her title is Toregene Khatun, and Khatun simply it essentially means royal lady or lady is, you know. Um, so that title is for a high status married woman. Um, and that's, but that's applied to anyone who's married to a Khan, for example. So it doesn't, it's not an elevation of her title. Um, she doesn't get cold, you know, there's no real term for empress. Um, so yeah, she doesn't, but the Mongols never really went big for a very, very titles. fancy titles. So, you know, you're a Khan, you're a Khatun, that's it. You know, we've got, we've got it. <laughs> mm. So at that crucial moment, when uh, Toregene says to Chagatai, listen, bro, I'm going to run things for a while now. Yep. And, and he says, that's fine. Yep. Do you think he said that? Because she was doing such a good job at it, because she was such an efficient ruler, or yeah, were there I mean, other mo motives at play? Yeah, I mean, so he he dies shortly after. Um, so you know, we don't know. You would expect perhaps that he would have taken over because he was the only. One I'm just thinking because it was such a patriarchal society. Nevertheless, yeah. why would this moment, which was quite exceptional, come? Why didn't he say, "No, one of your sons, or or one of my or whoever, uncle, yeah. or me." Why were people like, fine, yes, you, you keep well, going? One of those is, has to do with the size of the empire, of course. If, if people are all over the place, it's just easier to have the people who are already there at the center running things continue to run things, right? I mean, just for continuity. And as I, as I mentioned, right, she was already running things, essentially, uh, while her husband was uh, incapacitado. Um, and so in that sense, she continued to do that. And I think that probably you're right. That has something to do with why she was, okay, she's been doing it already. She knows what she knows the drill. Um, she's, she's got this. It's actually interesting. There is a moment mentioned by one source, um, that another one of, uh, Ogede's wives, um, who, um, was a bit older, um, she sort of tries to take on this position, um, and it's said that that Turgene basically outmaneuvers her um, with because she's very she's she's very clever. She also has sons. That makes a difference in your in a in a woman's power. If you have sons, legitimate sons, that strengthens your own power, right? And so the idea that she could be the regent also is sort of okay because also she can pass it on to one of her own sons who's ready for it. Um, and so this is also linked to the fact that there was a, there was a belief, and it's mentioned sort of in some sources that the rule should continue to be in the line of Ogede. Um, and so because he had sons and his wife who had given birth to those sons, uh, Toregene was there. It would sort of like a natural sort of position, right? Is that they would 
And this is also part of Mongol society that women um, were the sort of uh, they they were able to sort of hold things together uh, after their as widows. They they often just held the sort of um, uh, the husband's lands together, the, the husband's um, possessions together, and doled them out as as a sort of um, yeah an attestee of the will kind of. And so, in that sense, uh, Mongol women had that position already. Um, and in, it, it, even though this is on an imperial level, it sort of seems to play out in the same way. We talked about the witchcraft accusation mm-hmm. um, and and poisoning accusations. Were there any? other kind of taboos pertaining more to women than to men at that time what was absolutely forbidden for them to do for example maybe in regards to sexuality or marriage you mentioned that uh, the mongols practiced polygamy but presumably women probably couldn't just have like lovers or more husbands even if they were powerful you do get um some mentions in in later sources about um Mongol women sort of uh, being accused of something like that, uh, but yes, um, I think the, the the funny thing is in a, in, a, in a actually a society that uh, where polygamy is very common, um, adultery is really uh, seen as a very a big negative thing, um, and so we see all the different travelers, European travelers, Chinese travelers, who mention that adultery is punished with death, right? So that's that's something that is quite strong. Uh, in that in that mention um and yeah so i think you know there there are different um adultery sorry uh adultery by women is punished it, by death it's not it's not specified it's men. not specified i see but this is the thing right is that both mongol men and mongol women had slaves um and so who knows you know uh the re- their the relationships with slaves is often not not portrayed and so you know there may have been the fact that if you have a bunch of male slaves who you know are working for you 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 know you you sort of take liberties with them much as the men did with their female slaves so yeah it's it's hard to there's no way to know of that stuff going on um but yeah you you can imagine that if the if the mongol men uh, were doing it with their female slaves mongol women certainly probably so okay we can do it too so that's a little bit of a, you know, I think that that's a very, I think that adultery is seen, you know, in a very um, elite level. Yeah, so you don't, you know, you don't sleep with your Khan's wife or whatever. But if you're sleeping with a slave, I don't think that's really considered adultery. So, yeah, I think that sort of thing is all hush hush, but I'm sure it was going on. Um, we do, you know, we do see that there are specific um rituals and rites that are wit that are females rights right so there's um you know women will go and they have this thing that they do together right they, and so in that sense um yeah that that continues throughout uh mongolian society until you know the 20th century you see you know there are anthropologists who are saying that you know you have specific women's rights and specific men's rights um, and they should not sort of cross over. And so, yeah, there's definitely a separation in um, in society that, yeah, is probably should not be crossed. Um, so, what were some of those things that women did together, for example? Yeah, it's sort of it's sort of unclear about that. But I mentioned this sacrificial rite that Oelun was excluded from by her relatives, her her well, her husband's relatives. Um, and so there was clearly there's this thing that it says this, the women go off and do this sacrificial rite, 
and Holun uh, is excluded. And we see this uh, in other moments too, but it's not talked about that much. And again, it's probably because it's a woman's right and men were not allowed to be there and the men who are the ones who wrote the, <laughs> the sources. So yeah, we don't hear that much about it. But um, yeah, there, there are some things that I think continue into uh, later Mongol society that you can see there's probably has an older um, yeah, provenance from that period. So yeah, we don't really know exactly what these things were, but um, yeah, they definitely exist. Obviously, we can't get past the institution of leveret marriage. Mm -hmm. So if I understand it correctly, that meant that, for example, if a man died, then his son could marry... No, wait, I'm confused already. Now, Let's you, just have you maybe explain it. You, you're pretty much there, actually. I think just one, okay. one, one more step. But yeah, so the idea is that... So the son could marry the stepmother. Is that mm -hmm. it? Yeah, not okay. just the son, though. So it was um, the uh, sort of any younger relative of the man. So either a younger brother, a son, a nephew, any of them could marry uh, that, that man's widow or widows. So we actually... If they weren't directly related. Or... Of course. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. If yeah, they're not the mother. Yeah. So yes, we yes. Um, uh, have many, many examples of, of this taking place. In, um, for example, when Kublai um, was in China, he sort of uh, tried to put the leveret marriage into Chinese law. And then later on, this was abandoned because it was like, okay, no, this is, this is a thing that the Mongols do, but Chinese people don't do, and we shouldn't force it on them. Um, and so there is this difference in clear, clear difference there. And this is something that's noticed again by all the travelers saying, going there and saying, oh, this is mental, you know, um, and it's probably one of the harder things for Westerners uh, who are, <laughs> are used to certain marriage standards uh, to get their head around. Um, and so, yeah, you often have this sort of like, um, you know, uh, the father's wives being almost like uh fought over by the sons as well. Um, this Moge Khatun, who I mentioned, uh, she had been a wife of Chinggis, and uh, two of his sons sort of were competing for her while she was still alive, uh, while he was still alive, sorry. Um, so there is this, um, you know, because Mongol men married women much younger than them in a lot of cases. And so for the sons, they, there may have been some competition for them based on, you know, they may have been beautiful or whatever, and they were around them. But then there's also the fact that the status of that woman is elevated by the fact that she was married to the previous Khan or something like that. So there was a competition for them uh, in that sense too, right? Is that Mongol men uh, were aware of the status that that wife would bring them. Um, and so you have this happening very often um, that they were sort of trying to make sure they get the, the you know, even if they're a lot older than them and there's no chance of producing a son actually. Um, and so in, in one of the, another article I've written, there's a woman in the Ilkhanate in Iran who marries three generations of, of men. Uh, she marries the, the, the granddad, the, the, the son and the grandson. Um, and I, yeah, it's, it seems, uh, and she actually has children with all of them as well. So, Whoa. uh, yeah. So there's probably a bit of a, a high turnover. Yeah, uh, crazy, right? Um, there's quite. It must have been a, quite a high turnover in the in the. They must have been dying quite quickly. The the, the men, but yeah, um, that's one of the hardest things to wrap your head around. I think uh, in the 21st century. Um, Do we know where this institution comes from? Oh, it's it's very old. I mean, it's 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 happened. The, the idea behind it is that um, 
the woman, when she comes over from her own family, right? I mentioned that they sort of leave their family, they come over, and they're given things, right? They're given, as I mentioned again, they're, they're given wealth, they're given um, positions, they're given people under them. And so uh, the Mongols don't want to, or the, any people don't want to lose that that the, the wealth that, that, that accumulated around that woman. And so by doing this, it keeps, the, it keeps that wealth within the family, so to speak. Um, and so part of it has to do a lot more. But also, that, like, I, like I mentioned, the status, right? They don't want to lose the status of being associated with this lineage uh, and this woman in particular. So, yeah, that there's definitely there's a status aspect. There's a wealth aspect, too, right? Um, because women will come with will, a lot of money will come with them. A lot of servants will come with them. Um, and losing that could be, you know, if you think about it, maybe not so important once the Mongols were loaded, but in the earlier period, certainly that, you know, that losing that wealth could have been quite damaging. Um, and so in that sense, uh, yeah, it's, it's um, a strange institution somewhat, but uh, it, it also seems to um, make sense in, in their eyes. All right, let's talk about the last woman, powerful woman that we're going to talk about today, and that's Orgina Katun. Yeah. The independent ruler of the Chagadite Khanate for over yeah. a decade, you wrote. Mm -hmm. What was her story? How did she come to power and keep it for that long? Yeah, I mean, again, this is this is has something to do with um, you know uh, basically her running things uh, while her husband was 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 not around or whatever. Um, so these these. Um, you know, they don't have, again, like I mentioned, they don't have a specific title. We don't see this uh, sort of codified in any way. Um, but basically, um, her husband uh, is killed and uh, she's sort of um, established. And this this is the difference in that she's not the uh, ruler of the whole empire, right? She's the ruler of one section of the empire. And this is the Chagatayed Khanate uh, or Ulus, the, so the 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 part of the empire under Chagatai and his descendants. You're right. Still um, a pretty big place. Oh, no, no, it's huge. It's huge. It's most of most of Central Asia. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, a, a massive uh, realm to rule. Um, and basically the difference is, is that she is confirmed in this position by Munke, who is the, the Khan of the whole thing at the time. So basically that's a bit different because up until now it hasn't really been you know, um, the, the, the Khan himself has not said, you're doing this. But we see that in this case, is that um, here and also in the in the Jochid Khanate for a short time, uh, there was a, a, a female regent called Borakchin. And so the, in these two moments, Munke is saying, all right, you, you guys uh, rule this realm. And um, yeah, that, that happens in Urgina's case. She rules it for quite a long time. Um, and then basically she's... Uh, she has a son, uh, Mubarak Shah, so obviously uh, a son uh, converted to Islam. Um, but um, there's a com the conflict at this time when the, the the central empire breaks down. There's a conflict over who should rule the Chagatai at Ulus. And basically uh, the different uh, people con contending for power try and get her on their side. Uh, so one of them, Arik Boka, actually has, she agrees to his election. He eventually loses, 
um, to his brother Kublai, the very famous one. And Kublai basically tries to establish his authority over the Chagatide Ulus. And so he sends a Khan to take over and they have to try and either get Orgina on their side or um, sort of try and get rid of her. Uh, and they, most of them choose to try and get on side with her because she's very powerful. Um, and so eventually one of them just marries her and then um, establishes her son as the, as the sort of successor. It doesn't work. The son is uh, eventually like sort of exiled because he's uh, sort of seen as useless. And oh, yeah, Orgina is basically sort of more like sort of link to power for, for these competitors uh, for the Chagatai Ulus. So um, we don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting for, for unlike the others, we don't have so much information about her. Um, even though she's around for a long time, um, we do, for example, travelers uh, mention that she's she's in, in power at that stage. Um, and even that the realm is sometimes confused and called like uh, Organia or something like that, like ruled by her. And so, yeah, it's clearly a very uh, important person. But um, yeah, we don't we don't have that much uh, to go by based on, you know, things like her policies or whatever. Like we, we do know with Turgene, for example, she was getting rid of people. She was sending people to different places. She was, you know, she, these, there's clear policies that she was uh, enacting. Um, but with Orgina, we don't have that much. And that's possibly also because, as I mentioned, it's part of the greater empire. So we don't see yet these, you know, different um, Khanates making their own policies so much. What about Kublai Khan and his wives, for example? Was there a difference there? Because he was the founder of the Yuan dynasty, right, in China as well. And so he presumably, did he have Chinese wives? Or did he marry Mongolian women? Uh, well, so this is the, yeah, both. One of the ways that, that people submitted to the Mongols was by providing a wife. Uh, so the, the, the Jin emperor um, sent one of his daughters, the Tangut emperor sent one of his daughters, right? So in order to try and keep the Mongols, and that was before, you know, uh, they were taken over. So this was like, okay, we're, we're your vassals, but leave us alone. Um, and so by providing, uh, uh, by, by giving uh, a daughter in marriage to Chinggis, that was trying to keep him uh, sort of away from them. Um, and so, yeah, they, they married early on women from all over the place. Uh, Kublai has a very famous wife, uh, Chabi, um, who is extremely powerful. She's very well, well known. Um, and she uh, she never really becomes regent, but she's seen as the one who sort of inspires Kublai to take power. Um, she's the one. Is, saying, is she Chinese or, Mong or Mongolian? She's Mongolian. Yeah. Um, um, I can't remember actually what family she's from. Uh, I've forgotten. But um, yeah, she's uh, so as I mentioned, they have these families who they regularly marry back into. Um, yes. And so these yeah. families become very powerful, right? They become very influential. And so Chabi is very, uh, very powerful. And um, she's the one saying, okay, who's going to rule next and uh, trying to get Kublai to decide on that. And in, in the Yuan dynasty, which is um, not my forte, but um, there you have also a lot of women who um, basically are, they're trying to decide who takes over next. So you don't really have, uh, you have some regency positions for for a short time, but it's more like they're uh, involved, and this this happens elsewhere too. But they're heavily involved in deciding who takes over next. So that becomes a bit more like you know, uh, also like in other societies, right? Is that um, the women can have sort of more of the behind the scenes influence and in trying to 
establish, you know, who the next king would be or whatever. So yeah, that Mongolian women continued to have a huge presence in every single Khanate. That's something to not forget. They just don't get quite to the same level as, as the previous ones did. But um, yeah, I mean, even in uh, the Ilkhanate in Iran, you had uh, one uh, Mongol woman who was established as the ruler in um, the 1330s. And she is the only woman actually as ruler, ruler, right? She's given, she's, um, her name is, is said in the Friday prayer. Her name is put on the coinage, but she lasts only for a few months and uh, she's got rid of. But yeah, so that, that it's, it's weird that you sort of have this moment where in Iran, the Mongolian women had not had this regency position, but by the end of that time, they're starting to the, the, a lot of the princes uh, are dead and there's not a lot of uh, possible Chigisid options. And this is when uh, this woman takes over, Satibeg, her name is, and she uh, rules for a very short time, um, sadly. But yeah, um, this does happen. And also, basically, it, under Mongol influence, you have a lot of sort of um, regional powers who have uh, women become rulers. Um, and so this sort of seems to have created a little bit of a trickle-down effect in that other um, uh, dynasties end up uh, having women as rulers underneath the Mongols. Um, and so, yeah, you've got quite this interest. This seems to develop from, from that. Warrior princesses or Mongol warrior women. Was that a thing or was that not a thing? Or, uh, for example, when you were talking about Temujin's mother, being alone, yes, she had servants and probably a larger retinue than the secret history of the Mongols portrays. But on the other hand, um, what was the case when, for example, most of the men left for conquest in that period and the women were left in charge? Were, weren't they supposed to kind of be able to defend themselves from intruders or they always left enough kind of guards behind uh, for them to have protection. How did that work? Do you think it was possible that they, you know, in the upbringing of, of girls and women, they included some sort of basics of self-defense? Well, I think, the, 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 yeah, I think that the fact that you have, you know, the, they certainly could ride and I think they could probably shoot as well. Um, <clears throat> I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't doubt that they could, they could fight if they needed to be. There is one moment, I think that is described in the secret history where um, one of the women sort of fends off a, uh, someone who's trying to attack uh, or trying to capture Tolui, um, Chinggis's youngest son. Um, and she's like, you know, she manages to fight him off until some men arrive. But we actually have very, very little evidence of any Mongol women fighting um, in any sort of actual way that leading is different, right? So we do have evidence that, you know, like you said, when the men left, the women ran the camps. And this is a political, social role, um, but not a military one in in very clear way. Um, yeah, there's evidence that, that that Mongol women were sort of um, at least seen by outsiders as part of the forces because um, when they would be far away on their horses, the the hats that they wore wore on their heads were seen were looked like you know uh, a spear or something like that from a distance. And so there's uh, we have European sources who talk about these you know like looking like there's a lot more. Uh, armies than there were, a lot more troops in the army than there were. 
But we don't have any any evidence of that apart from one woman who's very, very famous um, called Kutulun. Um, and she's the one who shows up, for example, in the Netflix show on Marco Polo, etc. And um, she is a really, really fascinating character, but a lot of legend uh, exists around her more than anything. Um, but we do know that she was an actual military leader. Um, and she's sort of f- famous for being this. Uh, so Marco Polo is the one who talks about her the most. Um, and his his account is definitely tinged with uh, with myth uh, and so there's this idea that she was um, a famous wrestler and that she uh, would only marry the man who beat her uh, in wrestling and the, the ones who lost had to give her father uh, horses uh, and so her father becomes extremely wealthy because of this uh, so her father is Kaidu who actually rules uh, one of the Ulusus himself um, and uh, she is sort of seen as this very, very powerful woman. And then finally, uh, one of them beats her and then they get married and it's, you know, happily ever after. Actually not the case, very sadly. she's um, She was heavily involved in the politics of that Khanate. Um, this was the Ogadeid uh, Ulus, which emerges after the Ogadeids are kicked out of the rule of the general empire. They end up in Central Asia and they sort of start their own uh realm there. And she is the daughter of Kaidu, this very famous Ogadeid who constantly fought with Kublai in the East. And she basically is involved in the politics and she's trying to sort of uh, get one of her own brothers uh, to be the next ruler. And then uh, others are trying to get rid of her. And so she's involved in all this. And there's some moment where one of the contenders for the throne basically says, oh, you should be, you know, with your, uh, you know, uh, sewing and you shouldn't be with, uh, you shouldn't be involved in politics. Basically, um, she is heavily involved, and this ends up leading to actually she is killed, and her husband and her two sons, I think, by one of the one of the uh, sort of contenders for the throne. So she's one of the only she's the only one I think that that really we have evidence for of being a military figure um, in that way. So yeah, the, the, the political role was always strong, but the military role I, I have not really seen. It's, it's often used as a sort of like, um, again, like a trope about a man being bad at warfare is that he fights like a woman or something like that. Um, and so, yeah, then again, you see this sort of like, you know, recasting of, of the role saying like, Ugh, you can't even fight, you're, you fight like a woman or you're like a granny or something like that. Um, and so, yeah, there, there is a, a uh, there is this assumption that, that, you know, about women's roles and fighting is not one of them, but, I very much, if you compare them to, you know, um, uh, someone who worked on a farm or something like that, I think they'd probably be able to handle themselves pretty well if they're used to riding and shooting and things like that. What was her name again? Uh, Kutulun. Kutulun. So was this just a tall tale by Marco Polo? There's probably no truth of, of her doing UFC with the with the rest of the lads. There's a lot of legend that has emerged around it, um, and uh, there's an article. But is, about... is he the only source that? No, he's this? he's the only source that mentions the wrestling. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's uh, what I meant. And he he is an interesting character generally, and sometimes uh, it's difficult to believe him. 
and so in this case, it very much seems uh, like a nice mythical story to include um, about this faraway land where he's never, you know, he's never been. I guess he actually had been there. But um, yeah, so in that sense, uh, other sources do mention her and they mention her in a military capacity. So, of course, it's not impossible that she was also a wrestler. You know, if she's if she's famous for fighting, you know, what's the difference? She's fighting with a weapon and fighting with herself. Um, yeah. So in that sense that it's not impossible, but it's also not, uh, we don't, we don't know enough to say that Mark Polo, yeah, oh yeah, she was a wrestler, but we do know that she was an active political and military figure in that realm. Was Marco Polo not a very reliable source? When it comes to the it's, Kublai Khan's court, well, so this is the thing: it's, he's reliable in certain areas, um, and this there was a big um, debate in in Mongolian studies. Um, I probably it was probably around fifty, sixty years ago uh, regarding whether so there was a, an article did Marco Polo go to China um, and uh, it has been proven convincingly that yes he did go to China um, there's too much in there that is that is too accurate for us to completely throw him out but he did make up some of his journeys and um, especially certain parts of the world that he just seems to talk about like as as very fantastical so yeah, it's it's uh, Marco Polo tends to be taken with a pinch of salt, let's say, um, which is kind of sorry. I realized I made an unintentional pun because he think he was in charge of the salt, some the salt production of a certain area. Um, Puns are and, welcome on this. Yeah, podcast. it's an unintentional one, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> Even better. But, yeah, but he was actually yeah. So in that sense, he. Um, so he's not mentioned by Chinese sources, which is why people question whether or not. He, yeah, no. Um, and he's because he's actually I think his, it's just his status wasn't particularly high. Um, so he was at the court, but there were other Europeans who came to the court, too. So it wasn't like he was the only one. and It would be complete shock. Um, to see this, you know, Italian guy show up. But, you know, in that sense, it, that's why people were, were sort of like, hang on, why doesn't he, um, you know, why, why isn't he mentioned by the Chinese sources? But all, a lot of the other things that he talks about are corroborated in Chinese sources, in, um, yeah, in Persian sources. So, yeah, it's clear that he did go, but it's, it's definitely some of the other aspects of his, his accounts are a little bit fantastical. I think this would probably be, a good point to uh, come to a conclusion with our good old friend, John of Plano Carpini, <laughs> who always makes an appearance. I just wanted to know, since we're speaking of unreliable European accounts, um, what did he say about Mongolian women, if anything? Um, I'm trying to remember. So, I mean, he has this sort of, um, uh, I can't remember if it's him or um, William of Rubruck. So they had these okay, two, well, I'll take him as well. I'll take him as well. Um, but they talk a lot about um, this the 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 witchcraft aspect. I think it's William of Rubruck who talks a lot about that. Um, so and, so so this this guy was also uh, like John of Plano Carpini. Yes, yeah, Western diplomat. Yes, yes, well. Yeah. yeah, also a monk. Yeah, um, and he traveled in the 1250s. So Plano Carpini went in the 1240s. Rubruck went in the 1250s. Um, well, John Plano Carpini actually uh, is the one who talks about Turgene continuing to rule when Guyuk was actually installed, because he's the one who says that, oh, he was installed, but she continues to rule. Um, and so th there's often, you know, a lot of um, 
European travelers to the Mongols are mainly shocked about women being in the in the room in the room not room in the tent and and so women also are you know they're drinking with them that's a big difference for them right is that they they see these women and the women are the one offering them alcohol uh, in the Timurid era, you have uh, travelers, Spanish travelers, who are shocked by the amount that women are drinking, um, and they're visiting, and they think, okay, and they're not actually meeting the Khan; they're meeting the the Khan's wife, and the Khan's wife is the one who's hanging out with them and drinking with them, and so that is a big shock to the European travelers. But yeah, William of Rubruk talks about the uh, women in in particular in this this sort of witchcraft aspect and the different things that they were doing. Um, to try and, for example, make sure that they had a son. Um, and, uh, yeah, the different sort of uh, very interesting, uh, yeah, uh, the, the the methods of the shamans to try and get rid of a witch and things like that. Um, and, yeah, like sort of turning a piece of felt into an animal. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very... <laughs> interesting and it's it's um yeah the, the the with these europeans there's always this cultural confusion that is mixed up in the all their uh, what they say about uh about mongol society so this is clearly something that is very uh very interesting but uh confusing to to the europeans who are going there tobias thank you so much this was absolutely amazing um I'm probably going to call you up in like two months again. <laughs> yeah. This is like and, something and, I could talk about for a long time as well. Because I remember well, as, I was, as I was finishing, I was like, hey, we can't talk about the fact that they were drinking. We can't miss that. They were, they yeah, were, yes, yes. They were drinking with the guys, you know, like it was just a normal, it was a normal part of, of their society. And I love that fact, you know, that, that, that is probably the, you know, think, okay, we can, you know, just hang out with them, chat with them. And have a drink. So, with does, them. Does, does that mean that women in Europe at the time couldn't drink alcohol with the dudes? Well, or it's not about it's not about it's it's usually about the separation, right? Is that that's quite common to have the men and women separated? Even you know, it, this is not a specific thing to um, specific cultures that often happen, right? Is that they would be separated often? You would you know, uh, and this is the thing is that these 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 ambassadors were wanting to talk politics and you know the women are there and they didn't expect that to be the case right so there's a lot of sort of yeah cultural expectation that ends up being oh okay i didn't really understand that was going to be the the case and you know they're they're i guess in europe you know it probably would not have been seen as as um you know the right thing for a woman to be drinking a lot uh but it definitely seems to be the case in mongol society that that was not a problem <laughs> oh, uh, I'm going to have to do some more of a Wikipedia reading, so I'm even better prepared next time when we meet, um, which is probably going to be soon. Where can people find your work? You, do you still have a Twitter account that you made shortly yeah, so, after our last episode? Yeah, so uh, I'm on uh, X, as it's now known, of course. Uh, X, but yes, yeah, X, formerly name. known as, aka Twitter. Um, I am there, uh, Tobias Bahadur, uh, so a nice Mongol title that I've adap- adopted for myself. Um, awesome. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I'm certainly not a Bahadur, which is like a hero. So yeah, definitely not. But <laughs> I, I thought it would be nice to keep that. So yeah, you can find me on there, and I post about uh, different articles that I'm writing, different conferences that I'm going to, and uh, yeah, uh, you can follow me there. Very last question: What do you think of the Marco Polo Netflix TV show? Uh, it did it go to two seasons, or was it just one? 
I don't know. I couldn't. I couldn't finish the first season. I thought it was so bad. But I yeah. want to hear it from you, the expert. Maybe you liked it. I don't want to yeah, put I'm, any I, I certainly, words into I would, your mouth. No, no, no. I would certainly um, encourage everyone to to watch an episode just to see, um, yeah, Marco Polo doing doing uh, some some mixed martial arts. But um, yeah, that was that was that was a bit of a shocker for me. But um, yeah, uh, I don't know. Like, I think the the. Uh, Kubalai characters really is really interesting, but that's the yeah. the the best part of the show for me. Yeah, I mean Benedict Wong is a very good actor, but uh, yeah, I don't, uh, I I would not recommend it for someone who wants to to get more uh, info. Oh, come on, this pretty guy just like prances into the court and. Then yeah. he's just doing kung fu and hanging yeah, well, out in the ha- in the harem. Yeah, what's, like, it, that's what's interesting is that it actually the the show very much buys into his account, um, and unlike uh, yeah, it's 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 the the various things that have come out about the Mongols. So this film Mongol, a very very the Russian uh, film. Yeah, which is very very good, very interesting. That basically buys entirely into the Secret Histories account. So you have this sort of like, you know, they choose a primary source and they go, yep. And they believe everything that the primary source says, um, which is kind of a fun thing. I mean, at least you get like somewhat more of the primary. Of course, Marco Polo doesn't mention that he does Kung Fu, but, you know. <laughs> well, I just wanted to ask, does his source mention that he was practicing with a blind Kung Fu master <laughs> and hanging out in the harem? Well, it's, also, it's also quite interesting because the, the guy they chose to be uh, the blind Kung Fu master, his nickname is uh, Bayan Hundred Eyes. Um, so he was actually famous for seeing everything, right? Um, and so they chose it as this sort of like ironic nickname, like Little John or something, I guess. Uh, a little and, pun, a little yeah, pun. Yeah, and he's, he's, he was one of the most, uh, one of Kublai's most successful generals. Um, uh, so in, he was an actual character. That's oh, yeah, not an event yeah, yeah, yeah. No, right, he's right, a real right. guy. But yeah, famous for taking a lot of the Sung cities. Um, but yeah, it's, it's funny that they chose to sort of make this guy an ironic character almost. Um, <laughs> bizarre, but yeah. <laughs> well, <clears throat> the, um, thanks again so much. No and, problem. Yeah, I, I really hope we do this again pretty soon. Anytime. I mean, we will. We we will if you if you're gonna have time. If <laughs> yeah. and, and if that other person is not gonna snatch you up and force you to do a <laughs> Mongol podcast, which I hope they won't. <laughs> I'm happy thanks to come again. back. So yeah, no problem. Awesome. <laughs> hey, thank you for listening. First and foremost, a massive, massive thank you to my producers, Lorenzo, Jurechuk, Carmen, Veronica, Mila, and Taichi. You legends rock. Without you, this podcast would not have been possible at all. Thank you so much. For the rest of you, if you enjoyed listening to the episode, please follow and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. And of course, if you'd like to become a patron as well, go to Patreon type smart cookies in there um, and become one. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.